Hello, everyone. I am Kimberly Adams, and welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizdal. It's Tuesday. One topic is what that means. We're talking about Iran today, some of the biggest protests uh, in years and years in that country. It started a couple of weeks ago after the death of a young Iranian woman in police custody. Since then, um, dozens have been killed. Hundreds have been arrested in protests that are, uh, even as we speak, even as we speak, still spreading. Right. And those protests have tapped into this well of deep grievances in Iran over social, political, and of course, economic issues that have been just simmering for the longest. Here to explain what's behind this latest protest movement in Iran is Jason Rezaian, former Tehran bureau chief for The Washington Post, now an opinion columnist and author of Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly and Kai. So can you talk first about the event that was the catalyst for these mass demonstrations that are happening all across Iran right now and and what these protests are really about? Well, uh, the the real jumping off point for these protests happened a few weeks ago when a young 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini uh, from a town in the Kurdistan province was arrested in the capital, Tehran, uh, by the so-called morality police for allegedly not covering her hair properly. Uh, These police uh, have existed in some fashion uh, or other for the entire 43-year history of the Islamic Republic. Mm -hmm. They uh, enforce these rules uh, quite arbitrarily. Um, Mm -hmm. Any young Iranian woman uh, who isn't wearing a a full um, chador, the, the entire covering, uh, is likely to have had a run-in with with these authorities at some point. Uh, she was arrested and taken uh, into custody and, and taken to uh, a detention center that is notorious for um, for the kind of treatment that apparently she received. Uh, these these police uh, work outside the the bounds of any kind of laws or regulations and. Oftentimes, um, we've heard of instances where people have been beaten in custody. She's not the first person who's been uh, killed in custody. And um, and unfortunately, you know, the world hasn't known about uh, this phenomenon inside of Iran because we don't have the kind of insights into that country, the kind of windows into that country uh, that exist now with social media. And when images of her... Um, body on life support in custody uh, started surfacing and 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 spreading on social media. The anger uh, and and ire of Iranian people, which is always bubbling under the surface uh, for a range of reasons, um, came came out in in a burst. And that burst has continued into its third week with protests. Uh, taking place in in different cities and and towns across the country. It's a very different thing than we've seen in the past where uh, protests have have come up around specific issues or in in, um, communities of of different ethnicities or or religious backgrounds in Iran. Uh, We think of Iran as a as a as a Muslim country and, and it is a predominantly Muslim society, but it's overwhelmingly uh, Shiite Muslim, the, the smaller uh, Sunni communities in Kurdistan and Baluchistan have risen up at different times over the years. Other groups have, have risen up because of economic issues. But this is really anger at the entire system for its 43 years of corruption, 
uh, and abuse of power. Can you talk for a second, Jason, about the role of women in leading these protests? Because that's where the courage came from, at least in the beginning, right? Was these women taking off their hijab, women taking off their hijabs, being photographed um, and being being open about that? I don't think you can um, overstate the role of women in these protests. Uh, In Iranian society, uh, women have always played a very, very, very prominent role in all aspects of life. It's quite different than, say, Afghanistan under the Taliban or Saudi Arabia, where women uh, weren't uh, really part of daily life. Women in Iran have always worked um, increasingly over the last 30 years or so. Uh, their level of education has far surpassed their their male hmm. country countrymen. Um, they're in the workplace. They do every job that, that men do. And so, you know, very uh, naturally, they have certain expectations that are not being met. And under the law, they're considered half a man. Uh, it's a gender apartheid state. Women uh, ride on the back of the bus. Wow. Um, you know, schools are segregated. Uh, and so, sorry, like you know, literally, literally, sorry, wait, literally on the back of the bus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally wow. on the back of the bus. You get on a bus and there's, there's, you know, there's an entrance in the back for women and one in the front for men. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could not be more um, symbolically clear uh, wow. what this regime has tried to do to women. And at every turn, women have fought back. And, and, and this, this, this feminist movement inside Iran uh, has a long history uh, to 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 think that it that it's only just started uh, in the last few weeks would be a big mistake. I mean, this has been going on for a long time, but the courage of this current generation, the bravery uh, and the fearlessness of young women to not only go out in the street without their hijabs, but to uh, to to rally together to protest, to go out into the street um, in in the face of armed thugs uh, that are. Um, that are supported by the regime that are essentially the regime um, and, and risk their life uh, to say enough is enough. We want our equality. And I I think, um, you know, there's a lot of opining about what's going to happen next. The one thing I will tell you is that this genie isn't going back in the bottle. Mm. Hmm. I, I can't help but notice the parallels in language uh, as you're talking about this, you know, the back of the bus, the segregation, the, you know, apartheid state. And when you were telling the story earlier of just these terrible images of this woman on life support and that being the galvanizing moment that kicked off these protests, it reminds me a lot of the murder of George Floyd and the way Hmm. that seeing that you know, sort of set, you know, lit the fire uh, from all of this tinder and all of these simmering issues that have been going on in this country for so long. And that visual just being the trigger. And I, I wonder if you notice, like, that if you're seeing the same kind of arc that we saw here, where it just sort of is absorbing all of these other issues and grievances, especially when it comes to sort of economic inequality and and lack of political representation. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right, Kimberly. I mean, the the frustrations are so varied in Iranian society. Uh, and here is a moment where uh, the hopes and dreams, uh, aspirations that have been uh, pushed down for half of the society and the men who love them uh, is now boiling to the surface. 
this is a, a movement that that is uh, potentially affecting everybody within Iran. Uh, that's not to say that the regime doesn't have supporters and won't have supporters uh, as long as it exists. But uh, to 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 think that um, the bulk of Iranian people are are unmoved by the abuses of power, uh, especially against women, that they've witnessed themselves with their own eyes would be a grave mistake. And so I think, yes, there are parallels. Um, and I think that's one reason that a lot of people in the Iranian-American community are um, asking for other progressives uh, to support this movement. And they they think that they haven't received that kind of support. Part of that is because we don't have uh, really great coverage inside of Iran. Yeah. The number of, uh, of foreign journalists that have worked in Iran have been uh, dwindling year on year. I mean, going back to when I was arrested eight years ago, uh, when there were a few dozen foreign journalists at any given time, it's almost none at this point. So it's really hard to parse out what's happening. What we know, though, is that the protests aren't dying down uh, and people's bravery um, continues. It's crazy that was eight years ago. I don't, I don't need to tell you that, obviously, but, but wow. Um, can you talk for a second, Jason, about um, the economic underpinnings of some of this unrest? I mean, Iran is resource rich, right? Petroleum, natural gas, um, obviously uh, cut off in large extent from global markets, but also economic sanctions. These protests would have happened anyway, but how much has economic discontent and inflation exacerbated things, do you think? Look, I think the, the 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 best way to put it is the spending power of the average Iranian is one tenth of what it was ten years ago. Wow! Uh, the currency has declined that much. Um, you know, some of that has to do with, with sanctions. Much of it has to do with uh, with corruption and inefficiency with within the the system. Um, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, Kai, I mean, it's the highest uh, combined oil and natural gas reserves in the world. Uh, and people rightfully wonder why they don't live better. Uh, before the nuclear sanctions uh, were really, um, you know, kicked into high gear in, in 2012, 2013, the regime was able to really subsidize a lot of different aspects of, of people's lives, um, healthcare. Uh, education, subsidizing food and utilities. And that's gotten almost impossible for them to do. And I think for a long time, there was kind of an unspoken rule. And this is the case in a lot of authoritarian countries. You provide the, um, the, the means for a decent life uh, and we won't rise up against you, right? When you can't provide those, uh, those basic goods, services and, and rights, um, what is it that that you offer? Well, in this case, it's a abusive, ideologically driven theocracy that doesn't jibe yeah, with yeah. what most people in that country want at this point. What role, if any, is there for the U.S. in all of this right now? I think it's a great question, Kimberly, one that I keep coming back to and I have for a very long time. I think we've had this myopic view of Iran through the lens of its military and uh, nuclear program for far too long at the expense of trying to come up with creative ways to support civil society in the way that we did with, uh, say, East Germany or people in, in, in the Soviet Union towards the end of, uh, of, of the, the, the Soviet era. 
Um, I, I think we have to invest right now in, uh, in those people, understand what their frustrations are, understand what their desires are. People forget that although Iran is, you know, a, a, a authoritarian state with a non-elected leader at the top, it does have a history of uh, local and municipal elections that work, right? The democratic processes that we're used to on the local level um, have all been working pretty well in Iran for a long time. It's on the national and international level that people don't have a say in what's going on. And so I think, you know, civil society has the ability to be very strong in that country and to be... uh, really an agent of change for the entire Middle East if we figure out the ways uh, to connect with them. And part of what I'm arguing for is streamlining the process of dissidents to come to this country and and, and become a part of uh, the policy conversation here in Washington. Because if you look around, you know, the last time I walked free in Tehran uh, was about eight and a half years ago. Not going to find too many people who've been there more recently. Okay, so... Now what? What happens? Where do we go? Where does Iran go? Look, I, I don't think that we are at the end of this. Um, and um, I am wise enough not to uh, <laughs> predict an expiration date. But the one thing I will say is that, um, you know, uh, Islamic governance in the modern world started in Iran. It's probably going to die first in Iran, too. Mm. Um, wow. I, I don't mm. think that, that this regime is, is long for, for this world in this shape and, or form. At the same time, that doesn't mean that a democratic future is a foregone conclusion. I mean, the, the Revolutionary Guard has the guns, they have the money, uh, and they have uh, a lot of power. And I think um, uh, opposition within the country and the diaspora need to be doing the heavy lifting of figuring out what a future democratic secular Iran could look like and how to work together. And that's not been something that, that our diaspora mm-hmm. uh, has been good at um, historically. Jason Rezaian, former Tehran bureau chief for The Washington Post, now an opinion columnist. Thank you so very much. Thank you both. Jason, that was great. Man, good stuff. <sighs> oh, boy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, though, right? So he ends on an up note, right? I mean, that's the thing. He yeah. ends on an up note, which, given yeah. the, the preceding 15 minutes of that conversation, <laughs> you know, was, was not a given. Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm not a great saying. day to not have make me smile. That's a fact. Anyway, let us know what you think. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. All right, we are back, and now it is time for the news fix. Mr. Rizdal. Man, mine is served up to me on a platter by Bloomberg News, and the headline is this. Elon Musk is a troll. That's the headline. (laughs) Actually, that's not the headline. What the headline on the Bloomberg article was about an hour ago, so it's, you know, 10-whatever in the morning on Tuesday we're taping this. Elon Musk agrees to buy Twitter 
at the original purchase price of $54.20 a share. So what happened was that these court proceedings involving uh, the lawsuit between Twitter and Musk, remember Musk offered to buy, I mean, there was a whole long rigmarole, but the bottom line is Musk offered to buy it, changed his mind. Twitter said, no, 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 we're going to sue you and make you buy us. And the court proceedings started, and there was a bunch of discovery, and a bunch of text messages were let out, and Elon Musk caught a bunch of grief on Twitter about a Russia thing that he tweeted yesterday, and it just got ugly. And finally, last night, his lawyers apparently went to Twitter and said, yeah, you know what? Let's just, no no lawsuit necessary. I'm just going to buy it. $54.20 a share. Thank you very much. Um, And so, number one, it's just... uh, entertaining, oh my God, billionaires are idiots uh, story, right? But number two, this is a private citizen owning a ginormous communications platform, one ramification of which is that when this thing closes, which could be in days, Donald Trump will be back on Twitter. And I think that's germane. I mean, Musk has said as much. Musk has said he's going to bring it back. So, um... It, this is the far-reaching consequences, I think, is is the consequence of Elon Musk being a troll. Yeah, especially uh, in the run-up to the midterms, yeah. which yeah. It, there's already, you know, people saying out loud and very clear indications mm-hmm. that folks are planning to challenge the outcomes of these mm-hmm. of various elections around the country. And Donald Trump being back on Twitter will... Um, definitely play a role in that. And and you know what this is going to do? This is going to make the political press, every time Donald Trump burps on Twitter, they're going to go, squirrel, and they're going to cover it. You know? Mm. It's going to happen. You know, and it's it, it's tough because, remember, we had these discussions here at Marketplace when mm-hmm. Trump first came into office, and we did, I remember we did like a data analysis story about how Often Trump talked about the markets and different companies and how much impact that had because we actually tried to take it seriously for a while and then just sort of gave up (laughs) because, you know, from a sort of political and and business perspective, it wasn't all that impactful. He'd tweet about policy changes that didn't actually happen. He'd tweet about um, companies and not actually do that much. But now in this era where he has such a uh, intense following Mm -hmm. that is willing to be whipped into violence, as we've seen, uh, it it takes on a whole new lens because you don't want to ignore it because it could be early indicators of uh, violence or attacks on the democracy. But on the Mm -hmm. other hand, you don't want to be following the shiny object every time either. Exactly. Exactly. So that's my news. All right. Well, my news is following up on uh, what I discussed yesterday in a more humorous way. We were talking about The Onion's uh, wonderful legal brief to the Supreme Court. The more serious take uh, back to it this week is the first week back in session for the Supreme mm-hmm. Court with uh, new Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. And there are a lot of really important cases coming up this week and throughout the term. And if you thought that last term mm-hmm. was earth-shattering, this term is going to be even more so. We've got cases on whether or not Section 230 needs to be revisited. That's the section of law that basically says internet service providers and and internet platforms can't be held liable for the stuff that people do on those platforms, which is germane to what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Got sections uh, 
We have cases related to the Voting Rights Act and whether or not this court is going to kind of remove sort of the last piece standing of the Voting Rights Act dealing with um, racial gerrymandering uh, because basically in I think it was Alabama, Mm -hmm. there were only, you know, the state's 25 percent black and only one district is majority black, you know, and that you know, is being taken up again. There are cases having to do, as, with, as we mentioned before, uh, EPA, the breadth of power of the EPA and waters of the United States. We've got uh, cases on affirmative action. Um, let's see what else. Election law, voting rights, LGBTQ discrimination. There is going to be a lot going on in the court this uh, this session, mm-hmm. many of which can actually change the country. And I know that last session I was taught when the as the rulings were coming down, I was talking about the various amendments that our understanding of them have literally changed in one session. And I think this is going to be another one of those sessions where we have like just major shifts uh, to how we operate in this country as a result. So I think keep that's, an eye out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. I, I, it's going to be another huge term. And I just, you know, brace yourselves, I think, is the deal. Yeah. <sighs> All right, let's do a little mailbag, shall we? Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Giant aviation news in this first uh, listener voicemail. Hi, this is Peg calling from Seattle. And I am a professor at Seattle Pacific University. And this will make everybody smile. I had a student come in today and say, I'm really sorry I missed class. I was watching aviation history. Turns out that her dad test piloted the aviation airplane called Alice that was Mm -hmm. the first all-electric plane to fly. And they tested it over in Moses Lake, Washington, and she was there and got to see it. It made me smile. Thanks. Yeah, it's so cool that they can actually get those heavy batteries up in the air. I think that's just an amazing thing. Truly, uh, Wait, just super I'm cool. I'm looking this up. Alice oh, yeah. EV plane. Yep. I didn't see that. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at it. Yeah. That is a big deal, and yeah. especially because it looks sort of like the, uh, more like a private jet. Yeah, oh, yeah. And those jets in particular are pretty egregious when it comes to sort of like carbon emissions. Yeah. And celebrities are always getting taken to task for sort of taking their private jets and the carbon footprint and this, that, and the other. Yep. So even if it just moves into the private jet industry, that's a pretty big deal. Totally. Huge. Okay, now we have a voice memo from Brian in Indianapolis. Hello, Kai. Before you die (laughs) on a hill, can we just agree to disagree on GIF? My (sighs) observation is that the pronunciation has evolved. I worked with a graphics department of a book publisher in the early 2000s, and we used GIF files in early iterations of what are now known as (laughs) e-books. In the three or four years I worked with those 12 to 15 people, not one of them ever pronounced GIF like it was peanut butter. I'm not dying on any hill, but I will pronounce it with a hard G until my dying day. Thanks to that working experience, it is as ingrained in me as drinking water and breathing air. Oh, my God. Evangelize all you want. I can't change that. Brian, 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 Brian. No. Sticking with GIF. But hey, thanks for listening. (laughs) That's what I got. Oh, man. oh boy! I, you know, I'm 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 a stickler on very few things. Jeff is one of them. Uh, all right, you can be. I can I can be. I can be. 
Yeah, yeah. that's true. All right. Anyway, we're going to go. Uh, but before we do, uh, this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, once again, what is something you thought you knew uh, but later found out you were wrong about? Today's answer comes to us from Martha Segura. She is the city of Los Angeles' first chief heat officer. Her job is to oversee the city's response to extreme heat events, which are, of course, as we know, becoming more and more common. Here's what she said. Growing up in a Catholic Mexican-American family, we were taught to give our power to others, such as the church, police, government, and the patriarchy. Hmm. This would keep us safe and would somehow protect us. Then I was crushed. This was San Jose in 1978, and our entire neighborhood was evicted and displaced, and our homes were bulldozed to make way for the new Silicon Valley and the expansion of a freeway that had already been polluting our neighborhood. That experience of displacement changed me because those in power had taken and destroyed all of our homes and our self-determination, what little we had because we did not have power and our voices weren't heard. Needless to say, there was a lot I got wrong about what it meant to be in power or have power. People, democracies, and governments gain true power from serving all people equitably, not just equally. And as we advocate for climate solutions, we are really advocating for justice, for climate justice. Yes. Yes. And income and and poverty is playing such a huge role in, you know, what's happening with climate change. I just saw that, like, Bangladesh's national power grid just went down, Mm. right? Hmm. And... You know, that may not have been directly related, but you have this idea of when we're thinking about who has access to what resources, you know, poor people and people with lesser incomes and lesser access feel the brunt of it first. And some of these stories that are coming out of Florida in the aftermath of the hurricane, who are the people who are not able to evacuate, right? Who are the people who are probably not going to be able to rebuild their homes? And it's going to start becoming more and more present. But that was a really powerful one. Thank you. You can send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question uh, to makemesmart at marketplace.org. You can also leave us a message at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UBSMART. Make Me Smart is produced and directed by Marissa Cabrera. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Charlton Thorpe. One Carlos Dorado is going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. looks really cool. I'm still looking at it. Yeah, it's great, right? It's just cool that they were able to do that.